Oh, sorry, I can start that. Nobody talks to yourself more than you do. Like, you guys know what I mean by that, where throughout the day you're talking to yourself and like, oh, it's so stupid that I said those words or I should have handled that situation different. Like, we're, we always have like this internal sort of thing. And I think some people struggle with thinking really highly about themselves and that's how they talk about themselves, like to themselves. But in my experience and in my own life, I think most people struggle with thinking really low of themselves, like constantly beating themselves up, using labels for themselves that are demeaning and uh, we wouldn't like anybody else to say those things to us. And so what we're going to be looking at is what God's eulogy uh, of us is, like what he says about us. A eulogy is when somebody dies and people hear kind words about somebody. It, it sure would be nice to hear those things while you're alive, though, sometimes. Uh, I think everybody's hungering for this sense of validation. Like we want to be validated. We want to be accepted. We want all of those kinds of things. So what are some ways that people try to seek to fulfill that desire for validation? The first part of this sermon is this going to deal with a couple ways people seek to be validated that are insufficient. So, um, hand that back to him. Uh, so in John chapter 12, the first way that people seek to validate themselves or to feel validated is by seeking the glory that comes from man. In John chapter 12, you've got a really good summary passage about how people will try to feel validated by this. In the context, this is like a summary passage of Jesus's ministry. And by the way, the Gospel of John is like the Gospel of unsaved believers. If you're reading through the Gospel of John, you're going to see all kinds of people who are said to believe, but they're not saved. So John chapter 12, look at verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. <clears throat> you notice in this text, in verse 43 is probably the verse that pops out the most here, that there's these people that loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Well, what would that mean? It means that there are these Pharisees here that love it when people tell them how great they are. Like they love the pat on the back. They love it to hear all of these like like uh, um, words that would show them that they have glory and importance and significance and things like that. And because that's what they're trying to do to fulfill their validation hunger, it says in verse 42 that they're uh, not confessing Jesus because they're afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. Now, I'll just go ahead and ask this. Do you guys know what it means to be kicked out of the synagogue? in the New Testament time period. Do you know what that would mean for somebody? So to be kicked out of the synagogue, like the synagogue was like a Jewish church. And the people that you'd buy, sell, and trade with were part of your church because it was agricultural like uh, economy. So you'd sell your crops to the people that you went to the synagogue with. So if you were kicked out of the synagogue, economically, you were in trouble. Your, your social ties and the social fabric that you were used to was ripped away from you. And so these people cared so much about what people thought about them that they said to themselves, we're not going to confess Jesus because if we do that, we're going to be kicked out and ostracized and not treated the way that we would like to be treated. Um, try to think about why this approach to trying to feel feeling uh, valid, validated doesn't really work ultimately. Um, <clears throat> Proverbs 29 verse 25 says the fear of man lays a snare. 
So in other words, if you have this high estimation of what people think about you, and if the only way I can ever feel good about myself is if I know other people feel good about me, it's a snare, according to Proverbs 29. Well, why is it a snare? Um, People will let you down. You ever experienced that? Like people can be fickle with the way that they talk about you. And so uh, one day they're praising you and then the next day they criticize you and it just crushes your heart and you don't know how to deal with it. It's an extraordinarily fragile kind of way to try to fulfill your desire for validation. And so that approach doesn't really work. But then there's a second approach. Some people might say, well, yeah, I'm going to stop caring what other people think about me. So I'm going to try to fill my hunger for validation in another way. Go to Luke chapter 18. And the second approach that is insufficient to trying to fulfill our hunger problem is by looking at the failures of other people. So if the first one is seeking the praise of man, the second one is seeking the failure of other people. Um, I remember, you guys remember in elementary school, I don't know if you guys were ever bullied. I was bullied from time to time, even though I'm ridiculously strong and stuff like that. So it's kind of hard to imagine that. But um, I was bullied from time to time. And the teachers and my parents would always say, well, the reason that they're beating you up is because they feel low about themselves and they want to feel good about themselves by stomping on other people. As we get older, we might not be as physical anymore, but we get psychological with it. Look at Luke chapter 18 and look at verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Can you imagine this scene? Like you've got um, Pharisee and a tax collector. They come up to a temple. Sounds like the beginning of a joke, kind of. Like they go up to this temple and this Pharisee, uh, he trusts in himself. Do you notice? Like if you were to ask him, hey, do you have a high self-esteem or low self-esteem? What would he have said? I got a pretty high self-esteem. By the way, that's something that our culture really seems to admire, right? Like that's something that people want. Well, why does this guy feel good about himself? As he's looking over and he's praying, he's got like one eye open and he's looking at this tax collector who's obviously more sinful than he is. And he says to God, God, I'm thankful that I'm just so great. Like uh, there's other people in this world that are messed up. Here's subject A. And I'm just glad that I'm not like that guy. Now, What, what do you guys think about uh, what he's doing here? What, what he's doing is he's finding flaws in other people and it makes him feel good about himself. Have you ever done that? You like gossip? You know why gossip can be fun? Is because I finally got some dirt on somebody and in my mind I can now elevate myself above that person. Have you ever secretly rejoiced when somebody you were envious of when their life finally started to crumble apart? And you thought to yourself, finally, like those people that I was always jealous of, I can finally say that I'm, I'm elevated in my own mind. Now, what's wrong with this approach? 
first of all, this is another fragile approach. If, if you're trying to seek the glory of man, it's fragile because people are fickle and they're not always going to praise you. And one criticism will destroy you. This approach is fragile too, though, because if, can you imagine if this Pharisee went to the temple and there was a more Pharisaical Pharisee that was with him? How would he feel? It's like, that's hard for me to be around that guy. Like if you try to take your stock in your pride and you try to build your life around beauty or your intelligence or something, do you know who the hardest people to be around are? The people who have more of that than you. You like to be around the people, if you're trying to build your identity around these things, who have less than you do because they make you feel good. And so it's a very fragile approach to trying to fill your validation. But ultimately, the worst problem with this is it's extraordinarily unloving towards other people. Uh, I think about Romans twelve fifteen that says rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. When I'm trying to fill my validation hunger in this kind of way, I rejoice when other people are weeping. And when other people are rejoicing, I'm the one that's weeping. I reverse the verse. And so that doesn't work either. All right. So then those are the first two approaches to filling your validation. So the glory of man and then the second one, finding failure. And then then there's a third approach. And some people go, all right, all right. I'm not going to be unloving anymore. I'm not going to try to seek the praise of other people and like uh, try to get validation from that all the time. Not that it's ever wrong to appreciate encouragement. I'm not saying any of that. But the third approach could be to say, okay. I'm just going to try to tell myself that I'm a great person. Like, I don't care what anybody says about me. I'm just going to know in myself that I've got things together and I'm a good person. I'm not going to look for failures in other people. Well, what's the problem with that approach? Do you think anybody really lives up to their own standards? Take some, imagine that you've got somebody who doesn't care about the Bible. They don't read the Bible and maybe they're not antagonistic against it, but they just don't really study it and things like that. So, and they, you, you tell them, all right, Uh, You want to seek validation by thinking that you're a great person. Think about all the things this last week that you got frustrated about that you saw in the news. All the news that showed people who weren't loving other people, all the other kinds of things that you heard about. Have you ever done those things yourself? Well, yeah. Like, I can't say that I've lived up to my own standards. So then some people might say, well, I'm going to lower my own standards then. Well, then you feel bad about yourself because you're a low standard person. So, like, the, the point of all of this is this. We ultimately need validation from something outside of ourselves. And we can't always get it in people. And it's not loving to find the failure of other people. So what's the answer to this? Go to the book of Ephesians. Um, This is one of the most common things that I'll do in one-on-one Bible studies with people. Where uh, people have got some kind of struggles when it comes to this kind of thing. And I think as a human being, we've all... Like human beings just struggle with this kind of stuff and trying to figure out how to think about themselves. And so um, oftentimes when my wife and I will study with people, we'll say, okay, get a highlighter out and highlight these things in the book of Ephesians. Write them on your mirror when you get ready in the morning. You have it printed out on my PowerPoint thing because we don't have PowerPoint capabilities here. Um, So if you got your sheet, we'll be looking at that in just a second. But the answer to all of this, this whole issue is you need to look at what God thinks about you. You need to find your validation from what God says about you. But if you were to poll, like, like ask the question to most Christians, what does God think about you? What do you guys think most people would say to that question? What does God think about you? Do you think God would give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Most people, I think, have this view of God that he's just ready to beat you up. Um, and certainly he has wrath and it's always righteous. 
But I think what sometimes we struggle to look at God is a God that would affirm anybody because we're so far away from him. Look at Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Ephesians one, three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This book begins by saying that we are people who are supposed to bless God. Now, that word for blessed is eulogio, which is where we get the word eulogy. That's why the title of this lesson is your eulogy from God. A eulogy is just kind words that somebody has spoken. Um, you know the word like logos or lo logic is like words like eulogy. Eu eula is good and logos is word. So good words is the idea of that word. Um, and here he says, we need to be people who are speaking well of God. Well, what's the reason? In verse three, it's because he's blessed us. He's spoken kind things to us. Now you think about when God speaks, what do God's words do at the beginning of the book of Genesis? He speaks and what happens? Life, creation happens. Like when he speaks, things happen. By the way, one of the ways that I think we're supposed to read Genesis chapter one is that God is being pictured as like a cosmic king. In the ancient world, if a king says, get me grapes, people give him grapes. If a king says, I want a horse, the king gets his horse. I want my chariot, he, it happens. God is pictured as a cosmic king in Genesis 1 because he says something and it's done. So, it, and God's words have created the world. In Genesis, uh, in the book of Ephesians, God's words that he speaks about us recreate us and form us. That's why he's bringing in new creation with his words. So, what we're going to do is we're going to scan through Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and look at all the labels that he gives us. One thing to say about this, though, before we look at these titles that God gives us, notice in verse three again, he's blessed us in Christ. That phrase in Christ is used 27 times in Ephesians. Do you think Paul has a point when he keeps using that same phrase? What does it mean to be in Christ? How do you get in Christ? Uh, the Bible teaches that you get in Christ, you enter into a relationship with him when you're baptized into him. And so these labels apply to people who have been baptized into Christ and they're striving to live faithfully. All right. So uh, you guys ready for the, the this thing? We're just going to walk through this. There's 12 things that um, Ephesians chapters one through three says about the Christian. So the first one in chapter one, verse one, we're not going to read all of the text, by the way. The references are on the little printout thing. Um, but the first thing that God calls us in Ephesians is saints. Now, would you like, uh, I don't know if James, like when he introduces himself, would you say, I am St. James, I'm St. Josh. I'm like, that's not something that you really feel comfortable doing. A lot of our Bibles begin by saying like the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians or whatever. Like the word saint has got like this saintly feel to it. And it doesn't seem like it really should apply to us. And so you might like laugh inwardly when you hear that idea. But this what James or uh, what, when Paul writes this, he's saying you guys are all saints. Like there's not this you don't have to like have done all of these tests and like miracles and things like that. Like if you're a saint, it means that you've been set apart. Well, set apart for what? Set apart for God's purposes, like what we talked about yesterday, that you're a child of Abraham. You are um, a river that gives life. You are a monument. You think, well. That'd be cool if I could ever become somebody like that. Well, if you're a Christian, you've been set apart for that purpose. You're a saint. The second thing that he calls us in chapter one, verse four, is that you are chosen. 
unfortunately, since I've become a Christian, when the idea of being chosen gets talked about, it is subject to a lot of debates. Have you ever heard Christians debated about what it means to be chosen or not chosen? So he's writing to this faithful church. Like Ephesus at this point, in Revelation they get pretty bad. But at this point, the church at Ephesus is a pretty faithful church. God has chosen people who seek him. Uh, It's a two-way street. But this idea of being chosen is not something to debate about. It's something that we're actually supposed to rejoice over. Have you ever been the kind of person who was chosen for stuff? I remember when I was in seventh grade, I wasn't the worst math student in my class, but I certainly wasn't the best. And the teacher towards the end of the year was trying to determine who was qualified to be chosen to be in the accelerated class in eighth grade. And she called to the front of the class, like the different kids that she thought were qualified. And I came up to her afterwards and I said, well, do you think that I could actually do this? And she said, I don't know. Like if, if I did choose you, would you even want to do it? And I said, probably not. I just wanted to know if I'd be chosen or not. Cause there's something special about knowing that. Uh, here's what God says. I've chosen you, uh, clear away all the debates of that. And just appreciate the fact that God says I've chosen you, uh, in this text, it's also chosen for obedience, though. Like, it's a similar idea to being saints, but chosen, chosen is another word to say that. But in chapter 1, verse 5, the next thing, you are adopted. There was one time in San Diego, I, I was having a Bible study at a coffee shop, and this guy like kept giving us the evil glare, and he saw that our Bibles were open. And he like, kept looking at us and just like it was obvious he just kept staring at us. And so I said, like, sir, is there something wrong here? And he said, I would really appreciate it if you guys could take your Bibles out of this place. This is a public place. Please don't study your Bibles here. And I said, well, we have the, the freedom to do this. Like, we're going to keep studying our Bibles. And um, after the study was over, I just came up to him and I said, sir, did you have a bad religious experience? And he said, yes, I did. He said, my dad said that he was a Christian and he was like the worst man on earth. And so whenever I hear that God is a father, that's a concept that's offensive to me. And so I had to try to explain to them in the short conversation that we had that that's not the kind of father that God is. This passage says that you're adopted. That means that you're God's child. You can't take your earthly father experience and then assume that God is the same way. In the ancient world, um, there was a lot of orphans. I, I, from what I've read, there was more orphans back then than there are today, uh, like per capita. And as soon as a kid was adopted, they immediately had all of the blessings of the parents. So they went from like rags to riches. They had nothing. And then as soon as they, they were adopted, they had all of the inheritance of their parents. This is what God has done for us. We went from nothing. We had nothing. And then God has given us this great inheritance. We have, we've been adopted. By the way, uh, think about the word adoption. Have you ever thought about the two words that make up adoption? Ad and option. Do you know what adoption is? It's an option to add to your family. Is anybody obligated to adopt? No, it's an ad option. God was not obligated. And it's not like he looked at any of us in this room and thought, you know what, like, I really need Eric on my side. I really need Blake on my side. Otherwise, the kingdom of heaven will fail. Like, it was an option that God chose to add to his family. So that's adoption. Uh, Verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. You are redeemed. That's the idea of being freed from slavery. 
this goes back to the Exodus kind of pictures where the Israelites were, were in slavery in Egypt, which all of that pictures for us are slavery to sin, where we plan our schedule around our sins and things like that. And then what this text says is that even though we sold ourselves into slavery, God was willing to purchase us back. Does that remind you of the book of Hosea? You've got Hosea. He's told to marry a harlot. And she starts having kids. And Hosea doesn't even know if all the kids are really from him or not. Imagine being that guy. And then after he's, she, she, he's been cheated on and everything like that, God still tells him, you go buy her back. You go redeem her back, even though she's broken your heart. Is that not the truth about all of us? Have we not grieved God with our sin? Have we not taken the privileges that God has given us and squandered them at times? And then God still says, I want to buy you back. I want you for myself. You're redeemed. In chapter 1, verse 7 also, it says that you are forgiven. I re- I've, from what I understand, the Hebrew language had 10,000 words. You know what happens when more people are talking about the value of the dollar? When, when the government prints more money, what happens to the value of the dollar? It goes down, right? In the Hebrew language, they had 10,000 words, which means every single word that they would use was valuable. In the English language, like how many words do we have? Tons and tons and tons and tons. So it's, it's almost as if a lot of the words we use have less meaning because of how many words we have. But there's certain words in English that to me still never lose any kind of meaning to them. And that's one of them is forgiven. You're forgiven. You think about all the things that you've done in your life and don't think about it for too long. But those times that you said words to somebody and as soon as you said those words, you knew that it broke that person's heart. Those things that you've done that you haven't told anybody else because you're too ashamed of. Psalm 103, 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You're in Christ, you're forgiven. That's what God says about you. All right, chapter 2 verse 4, you are loved. You're loved. My guess is that most Christians would probably wonder at times, does anybody really love me? Our human experience is that sometimes people will act like they love us in order to get something from us. And there's manipulative people and everything like that. And so we wonder, like, does anybody genuinely love me? And then this text says in Ephesians chapter two, verse four, you're not just loved, but you're greatly loved. Now, here's one of my struggles since becoming a Christian. I have a hard time acknowledging that God might love me because I know that I'm not perfect yet. Does anybody else struggle with that? Like there's imperfections in me. And so I, I feel like I have to like get to a certain like maturity level before God would say that he loves me. In chapter two, verse four, he says that you're loved. But if you were to go over to chapter four, you would learn that the audience of, of, of this book, they're not perfect yet. Like there's still things about them that they need to grow in and that they need to change. And, but this isn't an excuse to say, well, I'm not going to go ahead and work on those things. But it's saying that even though you guys aren't perfect, if you continually strive, despite your imperfections, God says he loves you. That's a blessing. Uh, look at chapter two, verse five. You are alive. In Ephesians 2, 1, he says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so for us to be made alive means that new life has been given to us. You remember that old lifestyle of death? Like the word death in the Bible doesn't just mean 
like you're just dead, you know. Uh, it also means like a state of living. In fact, there's times in the New Testament where the word, words that are translated as death are translated as the same word as plagues for the ten plagues in the book of Exodus. Well, when you think about the Egyptians when they were going through the plagues, were they, a lot of them, still alive? Yeah. But it was like they were experiencing death while they lived. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we were dead. Remember that lifestyle of death? And uh, it wasn't giving you what you thought it was going to give you. Then here comes God, and he gives us new life. You've been made alive. In chapter 2, verse 5, also, you are saved. The more I've studied with people in San Diego, there's, again, a lot of folks in San Diego, that, uh, in California, that don't know a thing about the Bible. And so when, you're, when you start studying the Bible with folks, you have to, like, define words that Christians are, have kind of been steeped in and we kind of know the definition of. Saved. In California, if there's a beached whale and the beached whale gets saved, then that's a good day. If you are really scared of being single the rest of your life, your husband or your, your wife would be your savior because they rescued you from being single. Like, we use the word saved in all kinds of different ways in our culture. The word saved means to be rescued from danger. And so the beached whale was in danger of being a perpetual beached whale and dying and stuff like that, so it had to be saved. All right, so the Bible teaches that the worst thing that can happen to you is that you're eternally separated from God. And so that's the, the danger that is looming over your head, but God has rescued you from that. You're saved. My favorite one in Ephesians is the next one. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship. I don't know Greek. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this word right, but I'm going to try to pronounce the Greek word for workmanship and see if you can, like, try to tell me if you know what English word comes from it. So the Greek word for God's workmanship is poema. What English words does that sound like to you? Poem. What's a poem? It's a literary work of art, right? Uh, so you're, you're God's workmanship. Do you guys know the other time that this word is used in the Bible? In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it talks about the creation that God has made and how the pagans should be able to look at the created order of things and be able to acknowledge based on that kind of uh, assessment or as you're looking out at the world that there's got to be a creator of this stuff. I'm impressed with people who can make like tables like was it your dad or your dad? yeah your, like Kirby's dad can make like the, the table that they have in their apartment like I, I'm impressed with people who can do like handiwork and the Bible teaches that God's handiwork is creation right was was this an area where the solar eclipse was able to be like was it effective here the solar eclipse? in California it was like pathetic like at least the part we were in it was just like there's the sun and like part of it was kind of covered but nothing really cool so, but how, how could God create this sun and this moon that would just like perfectly align themselves together? It's just amazing. That's God's handiwork. Now we look at creation, we look at a sunset or a sunrise or something like that, and we go, God is amazing because the creation is God's literary work of art because he spoke it into existence. The whole world's a poem, but God's words make things happen. So the, that's why that's the case. Do you know what else is a living, breathing, walking poem? Is you. Because his words have been forming you. His words have been shaping you. And so God looks at you as like his work of art. I, we, there's some members at the church in Santee who really like painting on canvases and stuff like this. 
And so I asked them one time, I said, does anybody ever start painting on a, on a canvas that's messy? And they, well, of course not. You always start with a white canvas, right? You have to start with something that's clean, right? Is that right, Robin? No, it's not? Okay, well, they, well I, from what I understand, most people would start with a white canvas. That seems to be the most intuitive thing, unless you're into... I get your point. Yeah, yeah, you get my point. Thanks, man. Well, let's roll with it. Um, here, yeah. Here's what God does. God didn't start with a white canvas. He started with, with a, a piece of work that was really a piece of work. And like just messed up and disgusting. And then he starts to clean it up and then he renovates it. You're God's work of art. In chapter two, verse 16, you are reconciled. To be reconciled means that you've been like refriended on Facebook or like MySpace when people used to like defriend people and then refriend people or whatever. Um, to be reconciled means that there used to be enmity, but now you guys have been brought back together. In this room, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan. How many of you guys are Atlanta Falcons fans? And my Eagles beat your team uh, in the playoffs and then won the Super Bowl. Um, if we were just like, if we crossed each other in the alley, some of you might want to beat me up. <laughs> but because we're all Christians, I know you guys wouldn't do that. But because we're Christians, like we can be together right now with, with all of our differences and ethnic differences and everything like that. But we can be reconciled together so that in chapter 2, verse 21, we're made into God's temple. In the ancient world, have you ever thought before that the nation of Israel was whenever a church is like trying to buy a building, like we're trying to buy a building right now in, in Santee. And uh, we have, it's crazy how much everything costs out there. We're, we're trying to save up to get a building. And one of the things that the elders want to do is they obviously want to have a building on a strategic location, right? So like it's in a high traffic area so people can know where we are and things like that. Did you know that God took the nation of Israel and put the whole nation in a strategic location? So that if anybody would travel from Assyria or Babylon down to Egypt, which was like a common travel route people would go to, what nation did they have to cross through? They would go through Israel. Well, why? Can you imagine you've got these foreigners that are coming through the area and one of them walks up like to an Israelite town, like to rest or something like that. And they say, hey, like, you know, there's different regional gods. Like we worship Baal and Molech and then there's the Egyptian gods. Where's your God? Where's he located? And people could say, well, you see that big temple over there where they're like the, the temple, the tabernacle or whatever they would have at the time. Like that's where our God dwells. That's where he is. And he's actually the God of the whole world. In the New Covenant, if somebody was to say, well, where does your God dwell? He dwells here. He dwells corporately in that little church that we're part of, that we're trying to serve God with. Like, that's where you can find him. Well, it doesn't seem too impressive. You don't seem too impressive. Yeah, uh, but he's changing me and he's making me into his, his workmanship. That's what, that's what he's doing with me. Uh, that's the 11th thing. I've always wanted to say 11thly in a sermon. So there you go. Uh, we're going to get to the 12th one in just a second. But just pause there and look at the first 11 ones. Like if you got the sheet, just like scan those with your eyes. Why would anybody seek the glory that comes from man when you could have this? Like, have you ever had anybody speak these kinds of things to you? Have you ever known anybody powerful enough who could say things like that to you and it would get things done in your life? This is what God says about you if you're a Christian. It's amazing what he says about us. But Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 ends with a prayer that I think sums up everything we're looking at right now. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 and look at verses 14 to 21. Ephesians chapter 3, 
verses uh, 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In verse 19, the main thrust of this prayer is that he says, I want you Ephesian Christians to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? You, I'm sure you guys have looked at this passage before and wondered, how do you know something if it surpasses knowledge? Right. I'm, I, I don't know how to sing very well and things like that. I, I wish I knew how to do that better. But I've tried to learn more about like, how to lead songs and stuff like that. And so I've like, started to understand music a little bit better. You can understand the notes that make up a song. You can know the, uh, the tune of the song. You can know it on one level, but it's another thing to know it so that it impacts you in your, in your innermost being. And here Paul is saying, I'm praying that you Ephesian Christians would understand how much God loves you. All of these things that he said that the Christians are in the first three chapters. He's saying, please help God, help, please help these Christians know how much you love them. Since I become a Christian, I grew up, I had a period of time in junior high where I didn't believe that the Bible was inspired. I thought it was just a bunch of made up fairy tales and things like that. And uh, since becoming a Christian, the hardest stuff for me to believe in the Bible is not that Jonah was swallowed up by a fish. Whatever. God can do what he wants to do. It's not hard for me to believe that God created the world in six literal days. Whatever. He's God. He can do what he wants. Like Jesus' resurrection. I'm game for that. That's pretty important for us. Things like that. The hardest stuff for me to believe in the Bible is that God loves me. That's the hardest stuff for me to believe. And the reason for that is because I know a lot of my own flaws. In fact, do you know why we don't share our struggles with other people? Because we're afraid as soon as we say something to somebody else, they're going to distance themselves from us. That's why we keep quiet about a lot of things sometimes. But God already knows us infinitely. And he still loves us infinitely. You never met anybody that loved you like that, have you? This is what God, God does. This is who God is. And I think the reason Paul is praying, God, please help them know how much you love them, is because it's hard for us to believe that. You know, with one of the struggles that I've understood with adopted uh, children, at least this was an experience that happened in Tennessee, is that there were certain families that were adopting like teenager kids that grew up in orphanages in, um, in uh, the, uh, the, I forget what country it was. Somewhere in Europe, though. And uh, these kids, like, grew up in these families where they were never held, they were never cared for. And so when, when the families were thinking about adopting and the kids were initially spending time with the families, the kids would lash out at the potential adopting parents. Do you know why they would do that? I'm going to test you to see how stubborn your love is. Because everybody's always let me down. And so they would fight and fight and fight against the people and be disrespectful. And the people that were trying to adopt had to know that they're going to act like this sometimes because they're trying to see how serious you are about loving them. I think there's a sense in which we come to God as adopted children with human experiences where people haven't loved us. 
And God's love has got to settle us down, and we've got to understand how true it is. Now, what's the reason for this, though? Like, why is it the case that Paul says, God, please help the Christians in Ephesus to know how much you love them? Why does that matter to Paul? Did you catch it in this text? In verse 19, he says, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? If you take a cup and you fill it with the fullness of Gatorade or coffee or something like that, it's filled up with that substance. To be filled with the fullness of God means that God has filled up your life, which means that you start to act the way that Jesus acts. It means that you start to talk the way that Jesus talks. It means that your life purpose is the same life purpose as Jesus. It means that he's taking up residence in your life and you begin to look like him. Here's what Paul's doing here. Before you will ever be motivated to live for him, you got to know how much he loves you. You ever had, I, I don't know if you've ever like played baseball or t-ball or something like that, but I had a baseball coach in fourth grade that just railed on the kids. I don't know why. Like, I don't know why some of those guys really like try to feel powerful by coaching up little kids by being mean to them and stuff like that. But sometimes that happens. And do you think the team's morale was like really good? Like, yeah, we just want to be yelled at all day. Like, that's right. <laughs> Yell at us. It makes us feel good. Like there's times where I like skipped out on practice because the guy was so mean. Have you ever seen the parent that's like that? Like, we're going to keep railing on you until you get things figured out. And sometimes it's appropriate to do that. But if that's all a kid ever hears, how much strength do they have to live the right way? That's why the last thing in chapter 2, in chapter 3, verse 16, is that you've been strengthened. You've been strengthened. Where do we find strength? Where do we draw our strength from? The fact that God loves us and the fact that God says all of these things about us. What's the reason for all of this? Verse 21, in Ephesians 3, 21. Uh, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God does all of this for us so that we will in turn bring glory to him. One of the things that I said that I've, I've done with, uh, obviously everything we just did is a little bit more detailed, but whenever I'm studying the Bible with somebody, and uh, this is one of the first things that I do with somebody after they've been baptized and they become a Christian is like highlight these things, write them on a mirror, write it on an index card. You've got the printouts. So that's cool. Um, but think about those things and pray that you would believe that God says these things about you and see if that doesn't start to give you the strength to be a monument. If it doesn't give you the strength to go be a stream of living water to the people who are dead, let God fill you up so that you can pour yourself out. Um, I think we've got a few more minutes.